0: Microbial Nation. And thank you for joining us for another exciting episode of The Micro Moment, that show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess.
1: And I'm John.
2: And I'm Julie.
0: And we welcome you to episode three of our bioterrorism season, where we explore the dark history of mankind's use of microbes for nefarious purposes. Today, we focus on the years from Hook peering through the microscope to see microscopic world up through the years of germ theory and all the way through the Spanish flu. So roughly speaking, we will be discussing today bioterrorism from the 17th century up through early 20th century through World War I, leaving World War II to be ta- discussed in the following episodes, and that one will be a doozy. We are thrilled to have you join us once again, but before we embark on this captivating journey through the annals of history, where the paths of humanity and microbes intertwine in a dark and gripping dance.
1: Before we embark on our time-traveling expedition through 242 years of history, it's crucial to acknowledge the essence and life of scientific progress during this extensive period We understand the tapestry of life and science was woven with countless intricate threads, each deserving its own detailed exploration. However, our goal today is to provide you with a glimpse, a snapshot if you will, of the major leaps in science and society from 1676 through 1918, in hopes it gives a framework of where we are in our collective human history
0: so collective
1: of course the first thing we will bring up in major advancements in this time period is the microscope the, the in- microscope the microscope my the inven-
0: favorite invention of the 17th century
1: sure is this invention and refinement of the microscope in the 17th century opened up an entirely new realm of discovery scientists such as anton van Leeuwenhoek made a significant contributions to microscopy, enabling the observation of microorganisms for the first time. This groundbreaking tool paved the way for advancements in various fields, including microbiology and medicine.
0: I don't know if we've ever done a podcast on Leeuwenhoek.
1: Really? I feel like we've tapped on We've definitely
0: mentioned him. But I don't know if we've ever done one solely on Leeuwenhoek. Hmm. Have to put that on our, our to-do list.
1: Put on the list.
0: The list is ever so growing.
2: Well in the 17th and 18th centuries were a time of enlightenment and the age of reason. Individual rights, democratic principles, and the birth of America and the emphasis on scientific inquiry were at the forefront of societal shifts. Scientifically the 17th and 18th centuries we're all about astronomy, physics, and mathematics. In this time period, there are a number of scientists I'm sure you'll have heard of. Galileo, Galilee. Galileo Galilei.
0: Galileo Galilei. Galileo,
1: Galileo. Figaro.
0: Magnifico. Magnifico. Oh,
1: I'm, just, no.
0: That's- I'm just a poor boy. Nobody loves me. He's just a poor boy from
2: above. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> I'm going to stop now because we're just going to end up singing all of Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs>
2: All right. Well, let me massacre the next word then Johannes Kepler and Isaac Newton. Any songs about them that you know? Mm,
0: no, though I assume there's got to be a song about Isaac Newton. Kepler, I don't know.
1: Nothing's coming to mind.
0: Nor
2: to mine. Uh, all right. Well, anyway, uh, the 18th and 19th centuries delved into the great industrial revolution, a mo- movement away from farms to factories and urbanization, uh, bringing great technological innovations. One of the most transformative inventions of the 18th century was the development of the steam engine, uh, which revolutionized how work was done and played a crucial role in the Industrial Revolution.
0: The steam engine's got to have a micro-moment, too. You think? Everything has a micro-moment. That's the point of the podcast. I
1: guess they transportation of something, right?
0: Yeah, we'll have to look into it. I'm just so... Persistent in finding micro moments of everything and every time point throughout history and in modern day and in the future.
1: Every vacation.
0: Every vacation has a micro moment. Every moment's a micro moment.
1: It also created a great divide between the haves and the have nots. Immigration, slavery, and poor working conditions were rampant, but many of these soon brought reforms. Many of these privileges from these reforms we still benefit from today, like shorter work days, vacation days, and unions. I think we could do more with shorter work days, though.
0: Yeah, we could definitely short them up. You know, as we go back in time, the work days were longer and longer. So as we go future, they're just going to get shorter, right?
1: Sounds pretty good
2: to me. Yeah, four day work week. That would be
0: cool. Or like three, three
2: seems like a lot too. Yeah, I don't know who decided that it was weekends were only going to be two days. But
0: Anyways, back to the 19th, what are we at? The 18th
2: century? 18th century, I think.
0: 19th century. Oh, we're into the 19th century.
2: Yep. And during there, America would fight a civil war and abolish slavery. And though the struggle for equal rights is still going on today, um, over in Europe, we see the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Era. That uh, forever changed the European politics and societies, which we learned a bit about when we were in Austria. We'll also see the uh, start of the uh, women's suffragette movement and also still kind of going. We're still fighting on that today for equal uh, rights for all people. We'll keep on working on that. Hopefully
0: we are improving.
2: Yep, it's getting better.
0: The 19th century was also a very impressive time for scientific discovery, particularly in the microbial world. During this time frame, the Telegraph was invited, not micros, but that's okay. Darwin published his theory of evolution, also not micros, but that's also okay. And Robert Koch and Louis Pasteur became the champions of germ theory. And we have like, I don't know, seven podcasts about those two.
1: No, it was two. It was a two-parter. Okay, it was just
0: two. They had a little spat.
1: All due to a translational miscommunication.
0: Mm, but isn't that why we always spat communication error? That is true. Mm-hmm. Richard Petrie also came out with his Petri dish.
2: I didn't know there was an actual person that that was named after.
0: Yeah. Petrie. Richard Petrie. Just like Yersinia
2: is from a scientist called
0: Yersinian.
1: I have to admit, Rich- I was not aware of Richard Petrie.
2: Yeah. learn something new every day.
0: As additional micro-moments, we have cholera, syphilis, anthrax, tuberculosis, all major pandemics and epidemics across the world, and we're often a subject of scientific study throughout this time period, and we'll get into anthrax a little bit more because it is one of the most feared bioterrorist agents, according to the CDC and the WHO. However, today's anecdote on anthrax is how this bioterrorist agent actually helped us.
1: Hmm, that's very vague, and I don't know how it would help, but we'll see.
0: Oh, you know the story.
1: Okay, I am at a loss right now, but I will probably be like, oh, as soon as I hear it.
2: Yep, for sure. And for my fellow bookworms, the 18th and 19th centuries were also a great artistic and intellectual movements. Some of the greatest books of all time were written in this time period. We're talking about Pride and Prejudice, Frankenstein, Moby Dick, uh, Wuthering Heights, Roaming the Streets. We have Charles Dickens, Jane Austen, Leo Tolstoy, Fyodor Doitowski, Mark Twain, Victor Hugo, Edgar Allan Poe. One of your favorites. And if none of these sound familiar to you, your school has really failed you.
0: Yeah, I think I've read at least. I think the only ones I haven't read is Pride and Prejudice.
1: I think I really want to read Frankenstein. I haven't, but it's supposed to be like, that's a seminal book.
0: It's a classic. Yeah. Written by a female. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. she only
1: like 19 years old, too.
0: Yeah, and it was like a competition between like her husband or like between a whole bunch of men and none of their books went anywhere.
1: Yeah. That's a cool story.
0: Yeah, I think that's almost cooler than the actual story of Frankenstein, honestly. Might be a hot take there, but...
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's just cool to show up, people, even though you haven't written anything of note before. And now it's like one of the the biggest books of all time. Mm-hmm. The spinning jenny and the power loom made textiles less expensive. Gaslighting created new ease to heat, illuminate, and cook in homes. We see a great rise in the middle class and the ideals of the middle class society. The concept of having indoor toilets or flush toilets in homes began to develop and gain popularity in the 19th century.
0: What luxuries. I know.
1: Particularly during the mid to late 1800s.
0: Okay, everyone. We got A right frame of mind now. We understand how awesome authors were during this time, how cool art was, the rise of biology and with it microbiology and people began to urbanize. We had factory conditions, which were awful, but gave us a lot of things that we like and still use today. But the money that came from all this urbanization and leaving the farmlands behind did allow for some simple luxuries like toilets. The unsung heroes of the bathroom.
1: Not so simple at the beginning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Created in Seattle, and every time the tide came in, water would rush up, so you had to make sure you weren't using the toilet during that time.
0: <laughs> Got to time it with the tides. Great. So now let's get into the gut-curdling acts of what I would call some of history's most villainous humans, bioterrorists. Let's begin winding back all the way to the 17th century, for which I only found one incidence of biological warfare. Hmm.
1: You know, honestly, I can't think of anything that tend that's biologically related.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, we should just sort of emphasize that in during this time period, a lot of people didn't have an understanding of what microbes were. We are 150 years or so away from germ theory, kind of the idea that microbes are the cause of disease. So a lot of what we're seeing is primitive, and we don't actually know the motives behind a lot of the people who did things. However, in the mid-17th century, the city of Candia, which is now Heraklion in Greece, was in the midst of a 21-year siege from the Ottoman Empire. The Venetian intelligence services, which aimed at lifting the siege by infecting the Ottoman soldiers with plague by attacking them with a liquid made from the spleens of buboes of plague victims. Although the plan was perfectly organized and the Dudley mixture was ready to use, the attack was ultimately never carried out, and no one really knows Why? And that little tidbit of bioterrorism comes to us from the Journal of Infectious Disease in 2015 by the authors Alani Thalassano, Kostas Sami, and Epi Polaku Rebalako.
1: So plague rears its head once again.
0: Yeah, very similar to what we saw previously when we were doing the medieval episode. So that was the one thing I found in the 17th century. So not a lot. We'll move into the 18th century. So now we're dealing with time periods when Hook did look through the microscope and did see his first animalcules, which are we now known as bacteria. I believe the first ones he saw was from the plaque of his teeth. And he made over 200 different lenses for his microscope. But anyways, I digress. So let's roll it back to 1763. This is, of course, before America was America, when we were the British 13 colonies. British officers in a morally bankrupt mood, mood, eh, mood or move, distributed blankets from a smallpox hospital to Native Americans.
1: Oh, here we go. I knew smallpox was going to jump in somewhere.
0: Yeah. So I was really trying to research this to see what it was, because it's something you always hear in school and hear talked about a lot. But there's actually a lot of dispute on whether or not this happened in a way that was active sabotage against the the Native Americans and whether it may have been accidental. I mean, the other thing I will say is that smallpox was, you know, the white man's disease. They brought it over, but it was passing through Native Americans uh, far before 1763. And a lot of people do note the Fort Pitt incident as the first incident of spreading smallpox, but smallpox was seen across the country uh, before 1763. However, if they did end up distributing blankets of smallpox, the actions could have been quite devastating and forever altering the lives of countless innocent people. Is yours before Napoleonic era? During. During. Okay, should I do mine, Napoleon? Maybe yours. Maybe you go first. Okay. Okay, so we'll move over to the land of the French.
1: Yes, we're going to the land of wine and cheese.
0: Well, I love the land of wine and cheese.
1: So I'm probably going to butcher this name, but this is a story of the Walcheren Fever or Walcheren Fever. So let me set the scene here. The year is 1809. France is in the middle of the vast expansion as the Napoleonic War is going on. The French Empire covers most of the shoreline of Europe, and they're waving their hands at the island that is the UK at that point. To help- it's
0: like, hey, t- hey t- hello.
1: Hello, t- we're coming for Bonjour. you. Exactly. <laughs> to help the Austrian forces, England sends 39,000 troops to the island of Welcheren. As a side note, I read this somewhere, but Austria is landlocked, so I'm not exactly sure why these forces are on the western side of the continent. It just could be my lack of knowledge for history at this time point.
2: Well, I
0: think the end points, the divide of countries now are different than they were in the 1800s. I'm really not sure, though.
1: Well, I also looked at like the Austrian Empire, and I don't think it stretched that far. But again, I could just be ignorant. Not only are the English helping the Austrians, I think it was to try to push the Napoleonic wave away from their shoreline. The British shipped out and landed on the island on July 30th, 1809. Once there, they had four goals. To capture and destroy enemy ships. To destroy the arsenals and dockyards in the surrounding mainland. To capture the island and to make the river Schilt. Unnavigable. This is a river that flows from France through Brussels and empties in a bay that the island is located. So it's really like if they can take control of that, they can cut off commerce, warships, whatever, from entering France.
0: Yeah, water was so important.
1: Oh, so important.
0: Back in the day and still now, though I think sometimes we try to forget about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, look at the Civil War. Mississippi was like a pivotal role in that. Mm Mm-hmm from soldiers journals it seemed that it was a very enjoyable place at the time one soldier claimed it was rustic however people started getting sick from august to september cases jumped from 700 to over eight thousand, with soldiers with disease that was termed the waldron fever
0: bum bum bum
1: As the months progressed, more and more soldiers became sick. They made makeshift hospitals that they set up anywhere they could find space, and they ended up packing the sick like sardines, which did not help the spread of the disease. Though doctors tried to treat the sick, the medications were quite ineffective, with some being laxative and emetics.
0: Wow, somehow I'm not surprised that doctors of the 18th, 19th century had no idea how to deal with. Yeah. A fever.
1: We're just going to try to make you poop yourself and vomit all over the place. Let's see if that makes you feel better.
0: Well, better than leeches? Uh. (laughs) You'd rather have the leeches? I
1: think I'd rather have the leeches. I think I'd
0: rather have leeches, too, yeah. I hate vomiting. Yeah, me too. Yeah, Yeah. leeches. Team leeches.
1: (laughs) Hashtag team leeches. (laughs) It got so bad that the army had become crippled and Britain had to give up the island the following February. Although some fighting did occur between forces, it only led to the loss of 100 people. A pale comparison to the fever, which killed 10% of the army and incapacitated 40%
0: of it. Wow.
1: Even after leaving the island, six months later, 11,000 people were still sick.
0: Damn.
1: Yeah. Now, you may be asking, John... Was this an act of bioterrorism?
0: John, I am asking that.
1: (laughs) Well, the island was a swampy and low elevation that was prone to flooding. Now, to help combat this, dikes were built prior to prevent flooding. When the English arrived, Napoleon ordered that the dikes be breached. One argument could be that it was meant to slow down the British, but I don't think this is the case. This is due to a quote that Napoleon had said. We must oppose the English with nothing but fever, which will soon devour them all. Also, So
0: dramatic.
1: It is very dramatic. Also, the island was known as a high risk of disease, something the British knew, but the Army Medical Department did not prepare for.
0: Why was a high risk for disease?
1: Uh, expeditions prior kind of noted the high rate of disease at the time, but they kind of just ignored it.
0: As one does in war.
1: Not to mention at the time, it was still unknown that microbes could cause disease. But I think they knew that stagnant water helped to breed disease, whether by miasma or otherwise. So This is
0: still um, pre-John Snow, right? He was 1850s? I
1: think so, yeah.
0: 30s, 50s, somewhere in there.
1: Yeah. And I believe this was a deliberate attempt by Napoleon. Not just because of this. But because his army had been destroyed by disease several years prior.
0: Oh, do tell.
1: In 1804. o Oh, go, not
0: even that long ago, huh? No,
1: We're going to the island of Haiti. French colony at the time had, and the slaves have ridden, risen up and overthrew their captors. In response, France sent an army to the island to retake it. However, most of the soldiers died. And this was because they caught yellow fever from the mosquitoes there. And the environment was a perfect for <clears throat> that insect. Tropical. There were standing water. Everything it needed. Even victims.
0: What insect? Mosquitoes. Oh. Yep. Pesky mosquitoes.
1: As a result, the island was lost to the empire. But I think it was a lesson Napoleon remembered. Knowing this island's reputation, the Waltran Island, its reputation similarities he made his move and so what caused the wall fever this is actually still under speculation
0: as everything is from 300 years ago
1: yeah well, you know record taking was not great and how they describe symptoms was different than how we describe it now so trying to figure that out it's really hard
0: exactly and history is always written by the winners
1: right some historians have understandably attributed the Walterin fever to malaria alone. However, there is problems with this hypothesis. The high mortality rate in such a short period of time is not compatible with that with the types of malaria known to have affected the Netherlands at this time. And not all the symptoms align. There is, I'm going to butcher this malaria, which could have caused such decimation, but this disease is restricted to the tropical areas. Instead, it was likely a combination of several diseases found in the area, which include typhoid, typhus, and malaria, and possibly dysentery. It's
0: always dysentery. Yeah. That's how... You never make it to Oregon.
1: <laughs> never to Oregon. You never finish that trail.
0: That and the oxen.
1: <laughs> or, no. Uh, what was it? Uh,
0: yep, by by a snake. Yep, no, forge but, a river.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's the one that always got me in the game.
0: Forge the river.
1: Could never forge a river. It always fail.
0: Yeah. What's the causal agent of malaria?
1: Well, oh, I'll get into that in a second.
0: Oh, I can't wait.
1: All right. So, this is from the article called The Lessons of and Fever, 1809, in the Military Medicine Journal. They compared the There's evidence.
0: was a Military Medicine Journal?
1: Yes. I think it I might. I want to read it. <laughs> uh, a lot of it was just like going over the tactics mm-hmm. of the battle. So that didn't really interest me in this capacity. But I still got some stuff out of it. So they compared the epidemiological and the clinical symptoms between Walter and fever and the suspected diseases. Now, I won't go into each disease, but I will just focus on Walter and fever or else we would be here all day. So for the fever, in terms of epidemiology, it had a 10 to 21-day incubation period. It was abrupt and lengthy. There was relapse seen the fatality rate was between 10 to 18%. The transmission, reservoir, and vector were not known. Which doesn't surprise me because...
0: No, I mean, they weren't linking anything to disease then.
1: Right. And as for the symptoms, we had ascites, or that's swelling in the stomach.
0: Ascites? And, yeah, ascites. What is the root of that that means stomach?
1: Uh, It's the cavity which your stomach, your intestines are in. Uh-huh. There's swelling going on in there.
0: Yeah, but ascites doesn't sound like stomach.
1: No, no, it's it's more specifically the the cavity that it resides in. Oh, okay. And extreme generalized edema, back and leg pain, constipation, periodic sustained fever, headache, liver and spleen enlargement, malaise, mental changes, muscle pain.
0: What does that mean? Mental changes. It said
1: mental changes. I interpret it as like,
0: like psychosis,
1: not psychosis, but you know,
0: association? like
1: association. No, I would say more like you maybe uh, a, a loss of mental capacity, like maybe you're getting confused more, maybe like you're uh, in and out of consciousness, uh-huh. stuff like that.
2: It is actually something that we check a lot at as an EMT. You're altered if they you have altered mental status, you could have high blood sugar, just means you're acting confused and might not be being safe and acting very erratic or could be violent.
0: Oh, okay. Thanks, EMT.
2: You're welcome.
1: We also have a possibility of a rash, restlessness, and a white-coated tongue.
0: Yummy. Mm. Does your white-coated tongue taste like something? I don't know. Could you imagine if it did and you just had to sit there with that taste on your tongue the whole time?
1: Yeah. I don't know. Maybe since senses there constantly. You just get desensitized to it. I don't know. That's true. So each of these diseases I mentioned shares aspects of this sickness, but no single one can account for everything seen. This led to either a disease we haven't seen since or several diseases running rampant. A perfect storm, if I may.
0: Oh, you may. <laughs>
1: To wrap up, I would like to give a little information about the possible diseases.
0: Oh, do please do.
1: So, typhus is caused by rickettsia or orientia, which are bacteria that are gram-negative intracellular microbes that typically go after the cells lining the blood and lymph vessels.
0: And cause rickets or don't cause rickets? No,
1: they don't cause rickets. But the fact that they're damaging the inside of the blood and lymph vessels I think would account for the extreme swelling seen in some of the cases.
0: Mm-hmm. It's actually quite a lot of symptoms that you just threw out there. Yeah.
1: And uh, we get typhus from fleas, mites, or lice. And each vector causes a specific kind of disease, which is known as murine, scrub, and epidemic, respectively. Luckily, it's easily treated with antibiotics, though. The next is Typhoid which is caused by salmonella typhi, gram-negative bacteria, and is spread through contaminated food or water, but is treatable with antibiotics. As of 2019, there are 9 million cases annually, and people can become carriers of it, a.k.a. typhoid Mary.
0: Man, we gotta do a podcast on her.
1: Yeah, I think, I think we gotta.
0: I love her. I mean, like, not really, but, like, kind of. It's an interesting story. It's a very interesting story.
1: Last but not least there is malaria. It is caused by four different protozoa all within the same genus Plasmodium. In 2020, WHO estimated there were 241 million cases worldwide. Wow, really?
0: Oh, 241 yeah. million? Yep. That's a lot.
1: It is a lot. And wow,
0: if- I knew it was prevalent, I didn't realize it was that yep. prevalent.
1: I think you see a lot of cases in Africa.
0: Af- you know, South America, Africa, Central yeah. America, I guess.
1: Really tropical regions. Yeah. And it could be passed by a specific mosquito, the female anopheles. There are anti-malarial drugs available, but there is resistance being seen. In fact, back in the day, gin and tonics were made to treat it.
0: I love a gin and tonic.
1: Although not seen today, tonic had quinolones in it a common drug for treating malaria. And so tonic was given to patients, but I think people did not like the flavor, so gin was added.
0: And gin's got such a great flavor.
1: It does. And this is really weird. So I I will only touch a little bit upon it, but it has a very complicated life cycle.
0: Which does. Plasmonium
1: Plasmonium does. Plasmonium. So... The life cycle of this microbe requires two organisms, humans and mosquitoes. So a mosquito takes a blood meal from a person that is infected, and the parasite is taken up with it, and around a week later, the mosquito will find another person, and the protozoa mixes with their saliva they infect a the person once injected from there it moves to the liver where it matures and then it moves to infecting and replicating red blood cells now this is a very oversimplification i i want to tell people go to cdc they have a chart and i tried reading it it's very complicated
0: <laughs> need a phd in malaria to understand yeah we'll get we'll get a phd in malaria here to explain like, it to us it
1: will go into a mosquito but then it some Changes happen in the mosquito, and then it bites another person, and then rinse and repeat. But yeah, this is a-
0: Microbes are just fascinating. It is. The diversity within their world is-
1: I feel like it has a million different stages of its life, Mm. all encompassing these two microbes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that's the story of the Walterian fever.
0: Interesting. My turn? Yeah. All right. So like I said, mine isn't exactly a bioterrorism weapon of the time, but it is a microbe that is well known for bioterrorists and bioweapon acts. It is perhaps the most feared bioweapon or bioterrorist agent um, that we have. Both the CDC and the WHO name anthrax as a major bioweapon to look out for.
1: It's actually kind of crazy that it's considered a major bioweapon, and it's so prevalent in the soil.
0: Yeah, but it's not easily contracted from the soil anymore. Yeah. It is easily aerosolized. That is true. Which is why it's such a good bioterrorist weapon. But today we are talking about how anthrax— is perhaps one of the most beneficial microbes in advancing human medicine. Perhaps second to penicillium.
1: Oh, do tell.
0: Mm. So most people are well aware that pathogens cause disease, and these pathogens can pass from one person to a person. But did you know that we know this because of one of the most feared bioweapons, bacillus anthracis?
1: Oh, uh, uh. I think I know where you're going with this, but I won't spoil it.
0: That's right. We're talking about Koch solidifying germ theory and developing Koch's postulates, which are still to this day used and taught in schools around the world to prove that a specific agent is causing a specific disease.
1: It's true. And it's his first big discovery as well.
0: And he did it with anthrax. So let me tell you a quick story. In 1873, the brilliant and stubborn Robert Koch was utterly stumped. He had refined the microscope, he had developed techniques for microscopic photography, and yet he could not figure out what caused anthrax, a disease that was plaguing the local herds. Koch got to work studying the disease. It wasn't long before his quick wit brought him to some simple yet important conclusions. He knew the disease could be passed from human to human and animal to human and animal to animal. He knew that if one animal was infected, it wasn't long before others got the disease as well. He also knew if you killed the infected animal, the hides and blood were still infectious and could pass on to new victims. Finally, he knew if he couldn't see the cause, he couldn't prove what caused the disease. But what caused anthrax and how would he be able to find it? To tell. Tried as he might, he could not isolate the bacteria from the infected areas, no matter how many spleens of infected animals he had bloodying up his workbench. But Koch was smart. He knew scientific discovery sometimes required new scientific techniques, new cultural techniques. He set out to figure out exactly how he could grow the microbe, this elusive little microbe. He knew that it lived happily inside living hosts, so maybe, just maybe, a piece of the host was necessary to grow the bacteria. Maybe the current media that was developed did not supply the right nutrients for the causative agent of anthrax, but he knew the host cells did. He got to work trying all sorts of potential solutions, then he noticed that the aqueous humor, or the fluid from a cow's eye, had the necessary nutrients to support the growth of bacillus anthracis. I remember
1: reading that, but I never read how he decided or how he stumbled upon that.
0: It's likely we'll never really know how many different potential things he tried out before he got to that conclusion.
1: I mean, I guess part of it may have been like, well, you know, a lot of tissue is solid. This isn't gonna work. Well, the liquid and eye, I, I mean, it is a liquid, why not try that?
0: And your eye's a little bit more gelatinous, like auger. Yeah. Suddenly, he was one step closer to making the scientific discovery of his lifetime. The one that to this day is how we connect a pathogen to a disease. But to defeat our enemy, you must understand them. He looked at the life cycle of anthrax, trying to understand the spore formation. But was it this microbe, this bacillus-looking microbe that was the cause of the havoc throughout the land? There was only one way to be sure. He created a pure culture of this little microbe, ran over to his cage of unfortunate lab mice, and injected some with this potential causative agent and others with a relatively benign strain of bacillus, bacillus subtilis. To this great glee, the ones with suspected pathogen died and the others survived. But could he be sure the pathogen was the cause?
1: There's only one way to find out, and I think I know you're going to reveal it.
0: He could not tell that this was just the cause. What he had to do was sacrifice more animals. His work was not yet done, and more mice would be sacrificed for the cause. From the dead mice, he extracted his pathogen, found it to be pure, and shot it into new healthy mice and waited. If this mouse, too, was killed, it proved it. Soon enough, the healthy mouse fell ill, experienced the same symptoms, and ultimately the same fate of the first. And Koch's postulates were born.
1: And lights beamed down from the sky, and angels trumpeted horns.
0: Exactly. Koch solidifies himself as a pioneer in microbiology, a man to be renowned, respected, and highlighted in microbiology classes everywhere to this day. But... Bacillus anthracis, the most dreaded of all bioweapons, the microbe that created Koch's postulates, is not done yet playing a crucial role in shaping human history. In a positive way.
1: Hmm. Let's see. Can I I take guesses on how it...
0: If you want to. Does
1: that have to do with, like, antibiotic discovery? Nope. Hmm. How else can it help in humanity? I mean, I guess it, it wasn't the only one that proved that microbes could cause disease, but it definitely helped. It's one of the first ones that they were able to prove caused disease, right?
0: Mm-hmm. But Robert Koch was not the only great scientist to solidify their legacy with a deadly bioweapon. Hmm. Who are we going to talk about?
1: Is it Louis Pasteur?
0: Of course it's Louis Pasteur! Koch and Pasteur were contemporaries of each other. They fought for the same thing to establish germ theory and get rid of this idea of spontaneous generation and miasma theory. Completely ridiculous, honestly. But they were not friends. They had a feud, but that's for another time, or actually for a past time. We have a podcast on it called Microbi Gal's Birthday Bass Episode 1 and 2, Louis Pasteur and Robert Koch. If you're interested, we will link them in the show notes or go ahead and search for them on your favorite podcast app. I'm sure you'll find it. Louis Pasteur was a prolific protagonist, preserving populations throughout his prime. Posing as the patron of potions and piency he helped the wine and beer industry persevere their products and brought great consistency to the industry. He was a savior of the silk sector, the stalwart of the stricken fowl, and conqueror of the weakened concoctions. Creating attenuated vaccines from chicken cholera and undoubtedly an ardent examiner of anthrax.
1: Ooh, that was a that was a long sentence.
0: I know. I worked hard on that one. Just wanted to wrap everything that Louis Pasteur did in a super fantastical, alliterated sentence.
1: Fantastical, compact, straight to the point.
0: Exactly. So like Robert Koch, Louis Pasteur also used anthrax for the betterment of mankind. So before we dive into the bioterrorist acts of this time, let's see how else anthrax helped humanity. Pasteur, too proud to rely solely on the words of Robert Koch, sought out to independently verify that Bacillus anthracis was the causal agent of the disease. But he need to go farther. He had a one-up Robert Koch, if you will. He need to prove he was the greatest of all time and would not be outdone by someone like Koch. He went beyond just telling farmers and herders to properly dispose of diseased animals. Oh yes, he went much farther. In one of his visits to a farm, he stumbled upon a few animals he thought should be dead. The last time he was there, those animals were sick. They should be dead, and yet, here they were, standing, grazing, showing no symptoms of anthrax. What happened? How intriguing, he thought. How very intriguing. And... Peculiar. What could this mean? How did they survive anthrax?
1: Does that have something to do with their immunity?
0: Of course it did. But he didn't know that at the time. He wondered maybe perhaps these animals never had anthrax. Just to make sure Pasteur injected them again with his own pure culture of anthrax, trying to you know kill them to see if they were going to die like every other animal he's ever seen that got anthrax. He waited and he waited. And he waited for them to turn ill, and he waited for them to die. But they never did. The animals were immune. But how? year remembered he could help the chickens overcome chicken cholera by injecting them with a weakened form of a microbe. Perhaps the same could be done with anthrax. You can weaken a colony of microbes in several of the same ways you can weaken a person.
1: Uh, don't feed them?
0: I mean, yes. Let them age. Die of old age. Exposing them to too much oxygen. Humans don't like that either. Yep. Um, Also boiling. Boiling tends to kill a lot of things. And, um, you know, for more sadistic means, poisoning. Yeah. Yeah. For microbes, this could be any antiseptic agent uh, they are susceptible to is a poison for them. But the one that worked the best was scorching these little cells over an open flame. By heating the microbes to 107 degrees Fahrenheit for a specific amount of time, he had weakened Bacillus anthracis to the point that when injected into livestock, they did not kill the livestock. Instead, this attenuated form gave the host's immune system a time to study Bacillus anthracis and concoct their own means of dealing with this pathogen. The immune system stores the solution away until it is needed. The next time the host sees the pathogen, now it's equipped to deal with it. But why does this work so well for Bacillus anthracis? Do you know?
1: Mm, Honestly, I don't know because a lot of pathogens give off varying forms of immunity depending on how you present them to the body. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually at a loss here.
0: All right. Well, Louis Pasteur would never know either. But thanks to the wonderful world of microbial genetics, we now do. And I love microbial genetics. It's basically what I put my whole life into. Mm.
1: Ooh. Wait, 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 wait.
0: Whoa, he's thinking. Does it have
1: to do with like heat shocking proteins?
0: Um, different P word. The P word in our ABCs of microbiology. Plasmid. Plasmid, so it's correct. Bacteria, like nearly every other living thing on this earth, stores its genetic material in DNA. Unlike you and I, bacteria's DNA is one singular circular chromosome. Typically, they just have the one, and it's not in a nucleus, unlike you and I, where we have multiple chromosomes that we do store in a nucleus. Anyways, I digress. But many bacteria also have an extra DNA that we call plasmids. And if you've been following our ABCs of Microbiology on our Instagram page, then you already know that these plasmids can exchange between each other and typically encode traits for survival, which incorporates H, horizontal gene transfer for ABCs of Microbiology, and P, plasmids in our ABCs of Microbiology. And if you would like the other 24 letters, you can go ahead and check out our Instagram at MicrobiGals. Nice plug. Good plug. Always got to find a way to sneak it in there, you know? In the case of bacillus anthracis, there are two plasmids, one to help produce the toxin and one to protect against the host immune system. During past year's heating protocol, one of these plasmids was degraded. Do you know which one?
1: No, I don't, actually.
0: It was the plasmid that produced the toxin, weakening the microbe to the point the immune system could catch up.
1: Oh, I should have guessed that. Mm.
0: To prove his point, Further, as I said, Louis Pasteur needed to one-up Robert Koch. He did a little SICOM project so he would be in the forefront of the public eye, thus forever solidifying himself in front of Robert Koch. He performed an experiment out in the open for the public to see, for the newspapers to report on, and for the doubts of fellow scientists to finally be put to rest. So they, too, did not have to prove that Robert Koch was right because he did not like doing that. The public display of science was a booming success. All the vaccinated animals survived and all the non-vaccinated animals died or were dying by the end of the experiment. And if you would like further details on this experiment, you can go check out our podcast, The Girl's Birthday Bash. One? One or two. Probably listen to both of them. They're yeah. great.
1: Oh, yeah. You did mention that study. I completely forgot about that. Good callback.
0: Mhm mhm. All right, so I'm going to talk about the Civil War now. And we're going to get into some like real bioterrorism. I know that I just like talked about like good microbiology history, but now we're going to get into some darker deeds by some evil humans.
1: Before we do, just as a sidebar, we are at 57 minutes right now.
0: Holy moly, maybe this is going to be a two-parter once again. So we thank you, Microbial Nation, for listening to our little anecdotes about bioterrorism and the microbes that humans have used for villainous acts.
1: I love the uh, emphasis you put on those words there. Very menacing.
0: I know, I tried. I've been watching so many menacing videos to get there. <laughs> if you enjoy today's episode, we please, please, please share it with one person that you think would also enjoy to learn a little history about bioterrorism.
1: You can also find more episodes by searching The Micro Moment on any podcast player.
0: And until the next episode, which will, of course, be... Continuing onward in our journey of bioterrorism in the same time period because we didn't get to quite all of our stories. We hope to see you next time on our podcast as we continue this journey into bioterrorism. We will have probably at least three or four or five, depending on how many rabbit holes we decide to go down in bioterrorism.
1: Uh, Concerning the amount of rabbit holes we've gone into already... I'd probably say more like six or seven.
0: Yeah, so many rabbit holes. We are just fascinated by this topic, and we hope you are too. So until next time, Microbial Nation, feed your microbes. Feed your guts. Make your microbes love you lots. Bye. Bye. Bye.